ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент притих, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, joining you from my new recording studio in the University of Pittsburgh Center for Teaching and Learning. I'll be transferring all my operations out of my home and into this studio in the coming weeks. A new recording studio is one of the benefits of support from the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give anywhere between $5 to $25 a month to support the show. If you want to become a patron of the SRB podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and click on the Patreon button. There is no better person to de- debut the new studio than my conversation with Grace Kennan Warnicke. Grace Kennan Warnicke has had a lifelong personal and professional association with Russia. She served on the boards of the National Advisory Council, the Harriman Institute, as well as a member of the Advisory Council of the Kennan Institute. She served as the country director for the Winrock International in Kiev from 1999 to 2013. She's the former president of Sovos Business Consultants, and she was the founder and project supervisor of the Volkov International Small Business Incubator in Russia and executive vice president of the Alliance of American and Russian Women, among many, many more initiatives and projects. She currently serves as the chairman of the board of the National Committee on American Foreign Policy. If that wasn't enough, Grace is also the daughter of George F. Kennan, perhaps the most influential American diplomat of the 20th century. Anyone familiar with Russia knows George Kennan. Grace's memoir about being Kennan's daughter, Daughter of the Cold War, will be published by Pittsburgh University Press in spring 2018. Here's Grace Kennan Warnicke. So your memoir, uh, Daughter of the Cold War, will be out this coming spring. And what does it mean to be a daughter of the Cold War? Well, my father was um, George Kennan, who was our ambassador to the Soviet Union, but in, uh, in 1952. But before that, in 1947, he sent back what I believe was the longest telegram that the State Department has ever received. It was 8,000 words. And I, I once actually saw it laid out. It took a whole room covering the tops of tables that went from one end of the room to the other. Um, I did also hear that in the State Department, as this long telegram kept rolling in, more and more people gathered to watch it because it was such a strange phenomenon. But in it, he really laid the basis of the containment policy, which was has been... United States policy towards Russia during the whole Cold War. And, um, and later the telegram was a, a version of it, an edited version of it with an affairs magazine, and after that in Life magazine, which was very popular at that time. Uh, and so what does it mean? Because I found it interesting that you uh, titled your memoir, A Daughter of the Cold War. So I, I, I'm interested in your personal relationship with being the daughter of George Kennan, and, and, and how did the, say, that Cold War uh, period define you in your life? Well, Russia defined me more than the Cold War. And of course, when 
when I, during the war itself, we did live in Russia, and I went to a Soviet, a regular Soviet school. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we were allies. So we weren't always, it wasn't always a Cold War. Right. In that sense, the title is a little bit misleading <laughs> because I was there before the Cold War and after the Cold mm-hmm. War. Um, yeah, and we'll get to the, your experiences as going to school in, in 1944 in, in Moscow. But, you know, I found it interesting that you, you, build, you begin your memoir with uh, your father's funeral. And, and you're there to, you, there to give a eulogy in front of all these really important American potentates uh, from the American government, past and present officials. And I found it really interesting that um, you write about giving your eulogy that you say, once more, I was rebelling against father's old-fashioned discomfort with women assuming public, a public role, but I had to speak both to honor my father and to acknowledge myself. So what was your relationship with your father like, and as particularly since he was a man who cast such a large historical shadow? Well, I think I had different relationships with my father. When I was, when I was little, he was gone a lot. I mean, in those early years before the war, the, we were separated quite often. I spent the two years living with my grandparents in Norway. I didn't see my father. And then... Other times he was in Berlin and we were in the United States. So my father was not a constant presence. But when he was around, he was marvelous with children. He loved to tell stories. He made up stories. We, we had a farm in Pennsylvania. And he would pretend to be all the different animals. And then the cow would say something and the sheep would answer. And the chickens would, would get into the act. Um, he was a wonderful, he had a wonderful imagination, and he always made life sort of fun. Mm-hmm. I, I think people think of my father as so serious, but he did have a marvelous sense of humor and a great sense of what children might enjoy, or at least he did with me. And um, then, of course, it, it changed when I went to college and when, I first, when he first became well-known because then I felt I had to live up to something and I could never live up to this sort of figure that was so admired by a lot of my friends. And it didn't help. I majored in Russian history and literature, so I was in the Russian field where people knew who my father was. Right, and and you said uh, you said that you didn't realize that your father was famous until you uh, came to college and, and people actually referred to you as Miss X. Well, I... I don't think he really was very famous until, Uh, let's say, maybe 1948, and I went to college in 50, uh, and I was in public high school, and George Kennan didn't mean a thing. Now, you, you, as you mentioned a little while ago, you, um, you moved around a lot in your childhood. Um, you know, your, your father was moving around several countries in his posts. Uh, you were living with um, family, boarding school. Um, but you did move for a period of time, for about a year, year and a half, it seems, to Moscow in 1944. And you were 11 years old at the time. And you went to school number 131 in Moscow. So what was school, going to school in uh, Soviet Russia, 1944, during the war, uh, and you had virtually no Russian, you'd forgotten your, any childhood Russian you had, and, and what were your impressions of life in Moscow? 
Well, life was hard. I mean, it was the war, and they had suffered a lot. There was nothing, no veg. The only thing you could buy fresh to eat were potatoes and cabbage and onions, and that was it. There was no other vegetable. We were lucky enough because they flew in canned food for us in the embassy, so I was treated differently than the than the girls I went to school with. This was during a period when they experimented with same-sex education, so I was in a school of all girls. Um, and the only thing we had to eat, we went to school from, the, because of the shortage of teachers, they had to send the, the kids studied in shifts. I was in the afternoon shift, which was from two to seven at night. And our poor teachers taught the morning shift and then they taught the whole thing all over again for the afternoon shift. They were pretty tired. And, and how, how was your relationship with the other students, with the girls in your class? That was fine. I mean, it did help that we were allies. We were fighting the Germans together. And every time there was a Russian victory, and in 1944 there were quite a few victories, we would all be summoned into the hall and we would... Great praises to Comrade Stalin for leading us forward to this great victory, and we would all cheer and applaud, and then we'd go back to our room. And did you have a hard time fitting in? Well, I didn't look like the others. That was a big problem. They wore, uh, they didn't exactly have uniforms because it was wartime and you, you couldn't buy identical clothes. But they wore either black, navy blue, or brown dresses with aprons, usually black aprons, so they were very somber looking. And my mother insisted on my going in American clothes. She said, I'm not going out and buying those ugly clothes. So there I was. I looked like a peacock. I mean, plaid skirts, colored sweaters. I mean, I just stood out. And um, in fact, they did push me into a corner and lift up my skirts because they wanted to see what American underwear was like. But having said that, I did make friends. Mm -hmm. And um, one friend who found me 40 years later, wow. and uh, from her, I learned they were very interested in me. Mm -hmm. I was, we had a rather frightening bathroom in the school. I won't even go into it, except say there were no doors, so mm -hmm. there was no privacy. And I, I wouldn't go to the bathroom. The bathroom terrified me. And so they called me, she told me later that they called me the camel. And they thought that Americans had some strange <laughs> mechanism. They didn't have to go to the bathroom. That's really interesting that somebody, a, a former student that you went to school with, tracked you down 40 years. How did, how did she approach you? Well, she was an architect, and she was at some meeting at the House of Architects. In Russia, they have these clubs for people, and there's a house of journalists, a house of writers, and there was a house of architects. And that's where they go for meals and, you know, fun, because Russian apartments at that point were tiny and very crowded. You really couldn't entertain very much at home. And um, there was an American delegation of architectural, I think they were professors, and there was one from Princeton and she somehow knew that my father was there, and she said, she went up to this person and said, do you by any chance know George Kennan? And this woman, she was a dean at Princeton, said, no, I don't know him, but I can easily reach him. 
and you know, and my friend explained why. And so she wrote a note to my father saying, "Where is Grace?" And you wow. know, and I was going over there. I was working for um, Metro Media at that point. I, I spent quite a long time in television, and I was <clears throat> working for Metro Media. And so I called her, and um, she wasn't home. I was very scared, and because this was still Soviet days, and you, um, uh, you never called anybody from the hotel because you know they they kept track of those calls. So I had to go off far away from the hotel. I went to a payphone and put in my Copex or whatever, and called. And a young woman answered, and I said, "Well, I was looking for." for your mother, or I was looking for so-and-so, Vaya, her name was, and she said, well, I'm Vaya's daughter, and I know all about you. You <laughs> went to school with my mother, and she knew. Wow. And they, when I did go over to their apartment, they had all my letters tied up with ribbon. We corresponded for a while. Wow. Wow. Uh, but then the correspondence stopped, and I thought it was my fault. I was always rather quick to take the blame for things. I assumed I'd stopped writing, but she told me when we finally met that the the KGB went to her father and said said that if there's any more letters between these girls, you wow. will be in trouble. You said when we first started, you know, discussing the title of your memoir, um, that, you know, Russia has been a part of your life, really defining part of your life. Um, so... When did Russia become a personal interest for you? Uh, and, and what were your experiences and impressions of visiting the Soviet Union, having you know, incidents like this where someone you were corresponding with was told to stop because they were father was visited by the KGB? Uh, talk a bit about this, your experiences in, in, with Russia over the years. Well, they changed so much. I mean, there was the early period, which I've already talked about, there was the Cold War period when you were, you were very careful or cautious about dealing with Russians because you didn't want to get them into trouble. Right. And, you know, you, we mostly met people in parks or places that were not, um, where they weren't sort of, where it was more accidental. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, as things, as the Perestroika, the... the the 80s were a pretty exciting time in Moscow, and I was, I had many, many jobs. I went back and forth and right. back and forth. I was there quite often. And, w and what were your impressions about life there? Well, life was hard. Yeah. I mean, but on the other hand, um, well, this is what the Russians themselves say. Back in the days when there was very little, but everybody was on the same level. They all had very little. They all lived in small apartments. There was not this sort of glaring contrast between rich and poor, which you see now. And you see the fancy cars in Moscow and the big, incredible apartment buildings. And, and, and how, did, how did Russians relate to you being the daughter of uh, you know, a famous American diplomat, a, key, a cornerstone of American policy? Well, first of all, I never said that. But surely they knew. Not necessarily. Okay. I'd meet somebody and start talking. I'd say, my name is Grace. Uh -huh. And, you know, they, you don't remember people's last names in a foreign language unless you 
they're hard to remember. Right, right. I just, I, I guess I figured that, you know, rumors, you know, swirl around. Um, well, I, I also married. Yes. So I had a different last name. And, um, yeah, my first, well, I was McClatchy. And McClatchy is not a easy name for Russians. Right, right. Now, your, your father uh, was expelled from the Soviet Union in... 1952. 1952. And you said that this uh, had quite an effect on him. What, what, what was the, why was he thrown out and, and how did it um, impact his, his view of things? It, it had a big impact on him because he was, um, he was very proud of being in the State Department. He'd gone in it for a lifetime career, and he assumed that this was what he would be doing all his life. He was immensely proud when he was made ambassador because he was a career Foreign Service officer. He started as third secretary. Um, and some, quite a few people sort of assumed that he just emerged as an ambassador, but he didn't, and he worked his way up. And he, he was, um, I think he was devastated. And it, it, was, it was the ostensible reason that he was declared persona non grata was he was going to England to give a speech and the plane stopped in Berlin and there was a press conference. And at the end of the press conference, when my father was under the impression the press conference was over, but it wasn't, a young journalist, but he was not in any particular outfit, just a young man came up to him and said, what is it like living in Moscow today? And my father said, well, it reminds me of when I lived in Germany before the war, because he was followed all the time. He had five KGB people who sat outside our, our house in a, in a car. If he walked, two of them walked, one on each side of him and one behind him. If he went in a car, they followed us in a car. When we went swam, the, we, went, we had a dacha, or a sort of country place for the embassy people to be able to go out and swim. Um, they would hop out, they had their bathing suits on, and they would swim on either side of my father. It was, it, it was very unpleasant. We didn't, we stopped walking with him because we didn't like it. Right. I mean, it's, it's unpleasant to be followed all the time. And so I think this is some, why it reminded him. Now my father thought this was off the record it evidently was on the record. And as a result of that, uh, Stalin declared him persona non grata. But my father also thought, and this is a little long, but bear with me, um, at that time, there was suspicion that there were bugs in the Spasso house, the residence of the American ambassador. And indeed there were, but um, they brought in a couple of people, one person who was looking around and finally found um, this bug. It was a more advanced technology than we had at the time. It both sent and received messages. It could be turned on and off. If you want to see it, it is now in the Spy Museum in Washington. <laughs> it was actually um, announced by Lodge at the United Nations much later. But, um, and it, it is there. And so when they discovered it, they asked my father to carry this out on his person when he was going to make the speech in England. 
And so he carried this out. And the Russians, it was actually, the Russians had very cleverly put it in the seal of the United States of America. The seal was cut in half. This little thing, it looked like a long spool of thread or something, right. was put in the middle. Then it was sealed back so you couldn't see that it had been broken in half. And it, it sat in our upstairs living room where we used to talk. It was sort of where we, I guess you could say, hung out. <laughs> because the downstairs of this house was very formal. And um, so he carried it out. They were so suspicious, the seal hung above a radio. And they took, um, he also took the radio out because the people that found the bug didn't know whether there was a connection. Right. And it was one of those big old-fashioned radios. It was a whole console. And so that went out with him. They stole the consul at the airport. The airport never, the consul never got to the United States. But my father always felt that part of the reason that he was declared persona non grata was not just the remarks at the airport, but the fact that he was carrying out this bug. Right, right. But it was, um, he was really, really crushed, and, um, and we were crushed because our father's, career up to then had been very forward. I mean, he was always being promoted and getting better and better positions. And then this came as somewhat of a shock to have your father sort did of kicked ever, out. Did he ever return to Russia? Yes. Yeah. He returned several times. He returned with my brother. I have a younger, much younger brother. He returned with him when my brother was 14, I think, something like that. And then he went over for, uh, after my father left the State Department, he ultimately ended up at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton and um, spent the rest of his life there. He wrote 21 books. So he was, um, he never stopped working, and largely history books. And he was at a historical to go back to Russia. He did go to Russia and to Ukraine on a, history conference mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's 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 interesting because you're the third generation of kennens have whose lives have been you know intimately involved with that place russia the first uh kennen of course was your father's great great uncle george kennen the famous explorer uh, and he played a major role in introducing americans to russia in the late 19th and early 20th centuries Talk about this first George Kennan and who he was, what he did, and your family's relationship with him, with his memory. Well, my father really had strong feelings about the first George Kennan. He felt they had a mystical relationship because they were born on the same day, February 16th. And um, so I always heard a lot about him. He was amazing. He was... Um, grew up very poor in Norwalk, Ohio. And when he was 12, he had to quit school because they had absolutely no money, and he went to work for the telegraph company. And by the time he was 19 or so, there was an ad advertisement for somebody to survey Siberia because there was the idea that they were going to lay a trans-Siberian cable. And he applied for the job, received the job, and was taken up to Alaska, or went up to Alaska, and got on a steamer, and went to um, 
to Kamchatka, where he got off the boat. This was in um, 1856. Mm -hmm. It was before the railroad. And so he crossed, it took him almost two years to cross Siberia. He did it by sleigh, by canoe, by reindeer, by reindeer and by occasionally horse-drawn. They weren't carriages. They were more like sleds. And then he got malaria. He was sick for a month and a half in a peasant hut. He did, of course, learn Russian on the way, but he was always very ashamed. He said, my Russian is very crude, <laughs> evidently, because he learned it from these sort of worker, right. the, the kind of people that ran these sleds and sleighs. And when he arrived in Moscow, he was so unused to any kind of comfort that when he was put in a hotel, he slept underneath the bed <laughs> because he couldn't sleep on the bed. It was too comfortable. But, uh, and he also learned, they had just announced that they were going to lay a transatlantic cable, which they did, and so his whole trip was for nothing. Right. But he wasn't discouraged. He sat down and wrote two volumes called Tent Life in Siberia which were published. He liked, started lecturing. He evidently liked to give speeches. And um, then he went back to Russia several times. He did one wild, he, d he did one uh, trip through very wild country, and that's where the wild comes from, um, in Dagestan and the North Caucasus, where there had been virtually no Westerners had ever been. And he wrote about that. He wrote a book called Vagabond Life, he did another trip, but then he, on these trips, he kept hearing about people in exile. And sometimes he, particularly when he crossed Siberia, he would hear the stories of these exiles, and he became fascinated by this. And he had always been, he'd never been anti the Tsar. In fact, the Tsar's government thought of him as favorable to them. And so it, when he applied for the necessary visas and permits, he received them, and um, off he went. He took an artist with him named George Frost. Both of them spoke some Russian, and they, it, they spent 16 months traveling in Siberia, and they were able to go and actually visit prisons. And in the end, it became very dramatic because the... Um, because people that were going to be executed knew they were that had the death sentence would give him letters to take back to their family. So he had these last letters. And people who suspected they would never get home also gave him letters. False bottom in his suitcase, and he carried out these letters. And he became um, violently anti the Tsarist government because of this really cruel system of exile, and there were a lot of people that were exiled. This wasn't just a few. And um, so he came back and he wrote two volumes called Siberia and the Exile System. Um, he also lectured 200 nights in a row, except for Sundays when you didn't lecture in America. Um, and he really, I think, had an influence on public opinion towards Russia and, and the Tsarist government. Yeah. The historical yeah. record certainly suggests that, for sure, that yeah. he had a very, you know, he was, you know, he was the expert on Russia because of his experiences and he, because of his, his public, um, 
activities and speaking to audiences, he certainly shaped a lot of how Americans understood this place where, you know, until that point, there wasn't much thinking about it. No, I think, I think you're right. I've always, actually, his books are very readable. Mm-hmm. And they're illustrated. They have wonderful drawings. And Yeah, I have a copy of the Tent Life book but I don't have the Siberian Exile book oh, for some Cy- reason. Oh, has even more dramatic <laughs> yeah. pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I found them very, they're not that hard to read. Mm-hmm. An- another interesting historical moment uh, was in 1967, Stalin's daughter, Svetlana Stalina, uh, she defected to the United States. And you and your family... Uh, developed a, a relationship with her. You spent some time with her and even hosted her at, at your family's farm. Um, why, why did she leave the Soviet Union? And what was your relationship and your time with her like? Well, it was amazing. I mean, I never thought I'd be... I, I didn't just host. I lived with her, took care of her, shopped for her, cooked for her, ate for her on our family's farm in East Berlin, Pennsylvania. We had a farm there. Mm-hmm. It's near, uh, it's near York, yeah. or Hanover, to place it more. Ten miles from Hanover and twelve miles from York. <laughs> and um, I never thought I'd be. It's kind of amazing. It's like as if you were suddenly taking care of uh, it was Stalin's daughter. Right. I of course um, thought we were going to have long, long conversations. And I was going to learn all the secrets of the Kremlin. And I, I learned a few, but I, I had three children. I also had my sister's two children because they were in Peace Corps training, the parents. And so I had five children under the age of eight. And, you know, you can't just ignore them. So, <laughs> so I had that. I had to cook. I had to shop. We had nobody in the house because my... Um, Nobody to help, because my father was very afraid that she was going to be kidnapped. Right. And um, he thought that it had to be a complete secret that she was there. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't want anybody in the neighborhood to know that she was there. And did she, t- did she talk to you about why she left and the circumstances? In which yes. She, 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 first of all, she was very, um, I'm trying to think of the right word. I keep thinking whimsical, but that's not what she was. She was impetuous, and she was the Kremlin princess. I mean, you you, you kept getting glimpses of this. I, I mean, when I was doing dishes, she never helped to dry dishes, I can tell you. <laughs> um, she didn't do things like that. Um, but also, she, she, she did things on whims. She had uh, had two husbands, had been divorced twice. She had two children back in Moscow. I think they were teenagers by the time she uh, defected. And then she fell in love with an Indian. She, was, she called him her husband, but in fact, she was not allowed to marry him. She never had married him, really. But she, she claimed he did. So that, that was confusing to me because I was getting two versions of the same story. Right. And um, when he died, he died in a sanitarium. She asked for permission to take his ashes and bury and put them in the Ganges River in India. And also his family lived in India. He had a brother living there. So she was allowed, which is kind of amazing. They let her go to to to, to um 
to do these ashes, and she stayed quite a long time. There were some KGB people that were sent also that were there to kind of keep an eye on her. And finally they said, you know, it's enough of this, you have to go home. She was living with a brother who was a vegetarian, and they were eating the vegetarian diet, and she was on a whole, she got very absorbed in Indian culture for a while. And um, I think she was very annoyed that she was being told what to do, that they, she just really resented the fact that they told her she had to go home. And that she told me, I mean, that really made an impression on her. So she was walking down the street in New Delhi because she'd had to get, I think, a visa or some bureaucratic piece of paper. And um, she went by the American embassy and she just turned and walked right in. It was very much, it wasn't planned. But she just shows up. Like, how does she, how do they know it's her? Well, they didn't know. I mean, this is where my father came in. They had no idea. They had nobody in the embassy spoke Russian. Uh -huh. She did speak English, but her English at that point wasn't as solid. Mm -hmm. uh, it, later, it became very good. Right. Um, I mean, she, but she actually spoke English perfectly well enough to have been understood. Sure. But I think they felt that um, they didn't know if this really was Stalin's daughter. Mm -hmm. Who would know? They'd right. never seen pictures of her. It's not like the British royal family, which you can see. Let alone showing up in Delhi. <laughs> in New Delhi, there was nothing. And they, they thought it could have been an imposter. Right. And Russian history is full of false Dimitris and false this person. So um, they, she was flown to Switzerland, and they flew. My father, George Kennan, was flown to Switzerland so that he could he could speak with her and ascertain if she was really Svetlana. And he did fly to Switzerland. He did ascertain that she was really Svetlana Stalin. And then he said he rather liked her. And she was, um, she at that point was very religious. She was going through a spiritual phase. Svetlana went through different phases. And this was her spiritual period. And um, so he said, well, I have this farm in Pennsylvania, and it's peaceful and quiet, and you can commune with nature there. You'll have a lovely time. And she said, no, no, no. She had somewhere else to go. And she actually went to her translator, Priscilla Johnson, and stayed there. But she turned on, ultimately, Svetlana turned on everybody. She, she had that part of her father was also in her and she turned on Priscilla Johnson and then called my father and said, here I am. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my sister lived, my sister Joan lived with her first and took care of her. And then Joan and her husband went into the Peace Corps. They went off for Peace Corps training. And that's why I had her two children as well as right, my next, three. Next in line. <laughs> so I was next in line. Yeah. And uh, Joni and her husband at that time, Larry, um, they were able to devote a lot more time to Svetlana than I was. Yeah. Um, yeah, with all those kids. I just had more on my, on my particular bucket. Now, another interesting uh, a story involving uh, Soviet Russia and uh, famous American personages was in 1978, you went to the USSR with Joan Baez. What, what, was, what was that all about? <laughs> 
Well, actually, what it really was about was there was going to be a um, an America a big concert in Leningrad, and they were going to have um, they were going to have the Beach Boys and Santana and Joan Baez, and it was going to be a huge thing. And at the last, so the I was a friend of the San Francisco Chronicle reporter John Wasserman, who was covering this. Mm. And Joan Baez needed a song that she could sing. She wanted to sing a song in Russian. So they came to me to find the song in Russian. I did find the song in Russian. <laughs> it was by Akujava. Mm-hmm. And it was a circle of friends. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. And, and it was a perfect song. And um, so I met Joan, and, and I got my visa. We, we were all set to go. This was canceled at the last minute. And, of course, I was crushed. I mean, here I was going to Russia, and I was going with Joan Baez, who, who, those of you who don't know, was an extremely popular folk singer with a beautiful, beautiful voice, really a lovely voice. And um, so I thought it was all over. But then Joan Baez, who was very active in the peace movement, wanted to meet with Andrei Sakharov, who was the um, nuclear physicist, but well-known as a physicist who became a peace activist. And she wanted to meet with him. Mm -hmm. And so she decided we already had the visas. Why didn't we just go? Wow. So she, John Wasserman and I, the three of us, went together. And he was had a very wry sense of humor. So he had a big black suitcase on which was written, Voyage of the Damned. <laughs> and that's how we went to Russia. Wow. Did you meet Sakharov? Was she able oh, to yes. meet Sakharov? Yes, we met Sakharov. We had, we had reached, Sakharov's wife was named Elena Bonner, mm-hmm. and we'd reached her daughter who lived in Boston. And she told us exactly what apartment building it was in and where it was on the street and what floor he was on and exactly how to find his apartment because the Russians had taken the number off his build of the building. It had no number. And they had taken all the the apartment numbers off on his floor. Mm-hmm. So that when you came you just saw doors. Right. And if you didn't know that it was the fifth door down to the right, you would have never found it. Right. You had a treasure map <laughs> of sorts. Of course Joan carried her guitar. She always carried her guitar. And um, so I'm sure we were followed. <laughs> right. They must have been rather puzzled as we felt our way down. Uh-huh. Well, they weren't on that close. And, and what was uh, Baez's impressions of all of this, being kind of not part of that Russia scene? Oh, she was, um, it, well, she found it fascinating in a way. Mm-hmm. And also... Um, but she, she was also, she was, all, she was her, her own self. Sure. And uh, <clears throat> we were invited to go, and um, Joan was invited, we were invited to a dinner out at a country restaurant, sort of on the outskirts of Moscow. And they had all the famous poets. Woznesensky was there, and you know, various people who everybody had heard of. They were all there, and it turned out they'd taken them. They have private rooms in those days in Russian restaurants. And when people like that went to a restaurant, they often were in a private room. They didn't sit down with everybody else. So they'd taken a private room, a big one. There were about 30 of us at this dinner. And then they asked Joan if she would possibly sing. Because they knew of her. Did they know of her music and... 
Yes. Well, they, they, as it turned out, I had interp- I used to interpret a lot, and I'd interpreted for um, Nikita Mikhalkov, who wrote mm. Burnt by the Sun right. at the Berkeley Film Festival. Mm. And he remembered me, and he was checking in. He had just won the, I forget the name of it, the Italian Film Prize, the, the equivalent of the Italian Oscar. Was it something to do with a lion? Yeah, I kind of don't know. Anyway, um, he had just won that prize, and he was coming back in, and he saw me at the airport. I was with Joan Baez, oh. and, and he knew about Joan Baez. And when he found we were standing in some dreary line, and I was scared to death because I was sure she had money on her that she hadn't declared. She did have money on her that she hadn't declared. Um, so I was quite nervous, and he said, oh, you don't have to stand in this line. I will take you through. And he took us to the head of the line or to another line and said, this is the famous folk singer of America, Joan Baez, and this is the daughter of the American ambassador. You can't have him standing in that. Customs people got all flustered, and we were shot right through. It was wow. wonderful. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. And what about her playing at this restaurant? Oh, well, she sang a song to everybody. Everybody was relaxing, and Brezhnev's interpreter was there, and he told me I didn't have to interpret. He would interpret. So she had Brezhnev's interpreter. I mean, everything was going fine. And then she got up and she said, this is wonderful, but I'm not used to singing in private rooms for selected people. I want to go downstairs and sing to the people in the restaurant. Well, everybody was extremely upset. Nobody liked that. Brezhnev's interpreter retired immediately from interpreting and leaving me to <laughs> struggle with this. And she said, I'm going downstairs. I don't, you know, you can't stop me. And she took her guitar, and of course I marched down with her. And we went up, and I had to translate to the poor Metro D saying, this is an American folk singer, and she's determined to sing for everybody. Well, everybody was a little surprised. Uh-huh. The um, people upstairs stayed upstairs, except for the Wozniczenskis finally came down, too. And, um, and so they finally found a microphone, and she sang. Wow. Wow, that's an incredible story. And when we we were leaving early, early the next morning, when I when I got back to the hotel, there was a call. My phone rang immediately, and it's it was a journalist. He said the news is all over Moscow about wow. Joan Baez singing. <laughs> wow, that's that's really incredible. Um, now, you've been involved in a number of cultural and, and entrepreneurial programs in Russia and in Ukraine over the, over the years. You were a More par- than you can yeah, count. Yeah, more than I can count. <laughs> I mean, just to name some of the things you've been involved with, you were uh, direct, one of the, the chief people for the American Soviet Youth Orchestra. You were um, one of the directors of the Alliance of American and Russian Women. You were, had the Volkov International Small Business Incubator. And you were part of this very fascinating project, A Day in the Life uh, of the Soviet Union, which you were also a photographer and editor of. You know, talk about some of these experiences and these various projects and the importance of, you know, what scholars call you know, cultural diplomacy. Well, I think cultural diplomacy is very important. Yeah. And I think it's, it has a special significance at times like today when official relations are very bad. Yeah. I mean, when official relations are not broken, but 
certainly not good. Um, it helps f for people to realize that people on the other side of the ocean, that we're all people mm -hmm. and we share a lot of human things. And it's particularly true, I mean, with the orchestra was very exciting. We, we originally had 150 Americans and 50 Russians. And um, it was exciting to see them get together, to play together, and then to see the audiences. And, and the orchestra, can, I was the founding executive director, but it was taken on by a, a woman named Dee Dee Holbrook, and it, it existed for 15 years. And it toured both countries. We had marriages that came out of that orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure many love affairs. Right, fascinating. And, um, and, of course, we share the music. Everybody knows Tchaikovsky. Everybody knows, you know, a lot of Russian music is Rachmaninoff. It's, it's popular here. Right, right. And, and in particular, you know, you're, you've been, done a lot of work with uh, women in, in Russia and in Ukraine. Um, what kind of things were you involved with? Well, I, 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 when I started working, um, I had my own consulting company for 10 years called Sovis Business Consultants. My clients were all men. The people that were going to Russia were by and large men. I was very often the only woman in a room. And they would then assume I was the interpreter. By this time, I was president of my own company. Never mind that my company consisted of three people, but... They thought it was a much larger company. And they were always surprised to see a woman with the title of president. They would tell me that, but it was unusual for them. And uh, Russia is much more, and Ukraine, were much more male-dominated than we thought in the West. I think in the West because Russia had more women doctors. That Somehow this myth that women were totally equal, really took hold over here. I think we really believed it. And um, it wasn't actually that way. Right. And um, when the Soviet Union fell apart, the first businesses, it was a terrible time in Russia. I don't think we realize how much people suffered. It was chaotic, and people didn't know what was, where their, <laughs> people suddenly became, who had always gotten money suddenly, didn't have jobs. There was a lot of unemployment, <clears throat> and there was um, there was real hunger. There was nothing to eat in the stores. I remember seeing those stores just empty shelves. It was a hard time, and the, the kind of some businesses that got started were often sort of mafia type businesses, and they weren't honest necessarily honest, and. The money that was around to start businesses largely came from the Communist Party, which had money here and there. And that was largely male-dominated. So women who wanted to start businesses had a very hard time. They couldn't afford to go to. There were some business schools that started rather rapidly, right. but they couldn't afford those. And they... Um, and they... So they didn't have the money either to start a business. I mean, they didn't have the capital. Almost any business needs a little bit of capital. Yeah. So part of um, the program that I ran in Ukraine, we ran a, we also had a small business. We had a loan, we had a loan project where we loaned small 
we loaned capital to start businesses. And as well as what we mostly did was give courses. We ran six, I would call them like little business schools for uh-huh. just women. And how, and how do you evaluate the success? And this was funded by USAID. Oh, hundreds of little businesses started. Yeah. It was quite successful. I used to be embarrassed. I would occasionally go in one, and I'd see a big photograph of me up on the wall. <laughs> that I found extremely awkward. <laughs> and, and what about the fact that this is uh, geared to women in a society where there's a very strong patriarchy? Women aren't, aren't are part of this Well, because world? these were small businesses. Yeah. We weren't threats to anybody. Mm-hmm. And we, didn't, I did not, we did not um, sponsor any businesses that had alcohol involved because I knew with alcohol would come, you know, would come (laughs) some dishonest people, unfortunately, but, and so we, and we were a little bit below the radar. If we'd started medium-sized businesses, we would have had a hard time, but we started these small businesses, so people thought, well, small business. And, and finally, um, what, what do you think is your father's legacy? And, and how would, well, first, how would you, how do you see things, what's your understanding and, and views on U.S.-Russia relations today, and what do you think his view would be on Russia, U.S.-Russia relations today? Oh, he would be very depressed. I mean, he would really be sad about the state of affairs mm-hmm. that we've gotten into. And um, I, I think his legacy is amazing to me. When he died, I, I mean, of course, I was, I was very sad the way you always are, but he was 101, right. so he had lived a very full life, and he still had his wife, his children. I mean, while I missed him, nonetheless, he had lived a full life. He yeah. can't really live much beyond 101. Um, so, but I thought this is kind of goodbye and farewell when I was at that amazing funeral at the National Cathedral. But now, of course, I see him quoted or in the papers almost every week. There's some mention of George Kennan. And we children tend to send these mentions to each other uh, because there are four of us. And um, so it's, it's, in a way, he hasn't died. That's what's so strange. And what about you? What is your uh, view on the state of things between Russia and the United States, particularly considering you experiencing the variety of ups and downs of relations between our two countries? Well, I was in Moscow last um, little over a year ago. I hope to keep going because it's interesting. It's a part of me. Um, uh, I'm depressed, too. I mean, I hate to see relations between our governments so bad. But, I, but things do change, and I don't know why or how they're going to change, but I'm sure they will change, yeah. and I hope they will change for the better. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of, the, one of the lessons, I think, is that even despite the relations during the Cold War, there were still these other exchanges and relations that you were a part of that, as you rightly say, are incredibly important to for Americans, for regular Americans to have contact with regular Russians. And I think this is one way to address these uh, low points at the governmental level. Yeah, it, it leaves other paths open. 
And some of these exchange projects became, um, they became less important when relations were very good. The, the orchestra, for example, n no longer existed because there was no need for it. Mm -hmm. There were Americans actually going over and studying in Russian, right. uh, Russian schools and music schools. And at the Bolshoi Ballet, we've had Americans studying. That was Grace Kennan Warnicke, a former board member of the National Advisory Council, the Harriman Institute, as well as a member of the Advisory Council of the Kennan Institute. She's participated in many cultural and entrepreneurial projects in Russia and the former Soviet Union. She's also the daughter of George F. Kennan, perhaps the most influential American diplomat of the 20th century. Grace's memoir about being Kennan's daughter, Daughter of the Cold War, will be published by Pittsburgh University Press in spring 2018. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Жил да был черный кот за углом, и кота ненавидел весь дом. Только песня совсем не о том. Как не ладили люди с котом, говорят, не повезет, если черный кот дорогу перейдет, а пока наоборот, только черному коту и не везет, целый день во дворе суета, прогоняют дороги кота. Только песня совсем не о том, Как охотился двор за котом. Говорят, не повезет, Если черный кот дорогу перейдет, А пока наоборот. Только черному коту и не везет. Даже с кошкой своей за версту Приходилось встречаться коту Только песня совсем не о том Как мурлыкала кошка с котом Говорят, не повезет Если черный кот дорогу перейдет А пока наоборот Только черному коту